Greetings, this is The Pub, Australia Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing. I'm Dean Karpowitz. I'm Sam Elberth. I'm Molly Kressel. I'm Daniel Morbach. Today on the show, we talk with graphic novelist Marjorie Liu. New York Times bestselling and award-winning writer Marjorie Liu is best known for her fiction and comic books. She teaches comic book writing at MIT, and she leads a class on popular fiction at the Voices of Our Nation workshop. Her extensive work with Marvel includes the Dark Wolverine series, Nyx, No Way Home, X-23, and Black Widow, The Name of the Rose. She received national media attention for Astonishing X-Men, which featured the gay wedding of X-Men North Star, and was subsequently nominated for a GLAAD Media Award for Outstanding Media Images of the Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Transgender Community. Miss Liu also wrote the story for the animated film Avengers Confidential, Black Widow, and Punisher. And she was the writer of the Han Solo limited series, which debuted at number six on the New York Times bestseller list and was nominated for an Eisner Award. Her newest work is Monstrous, an original, creator-owned comic book series with Japanese artist and X-23 collaborator Sana Takada. She joined us for this interview via Skype. How are you doing tonight? Thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You're the first woman to receive the Eisner Award for writing. It's the Oscars for comic books. And Monstrous won a Hugo Award for the best graphic story three years in a row. So no pressure for next year. (laughs) Um, I have no expectations whatsoever. (laughs) I know I've gotten very lucky. (laughs) So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say you've made a pretty respectable footprint in the graphic novels world after making oodles of novels. Do you have any other comics in the pipeline that we can look forward to? And as a side question, do you want to give us a little hint as to how far along and monstrous we are, to, uh, how close we might be to the conclusion? Well, as to your first question, I don't know how much I can actually talk about it, but I do have a graphic novel for children. Hmm. coming out at some point, probably within the next two years. Like I said, I can't say too much about it yet, but it's going to be um, about a little girl who has to go save the souls of birds. Hmm. Nice. And that's been a real... Oh, thank you. That's actually been a a real joy to write. I, I had the idea many years ago and working on it has just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's been a very joyful experience. Um, so I'm looking forward to that finally coming out and being able to talk about it more. But as far as Monstrous goes, we're not close at all to the end. I mean, we might <laughs> sort of be at the midway point, but this is a long, hard story. And there's more to go, uh, more ups and downs for the characters. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I know I know this is not an easy book for Sana to draw. So mm-hmm. both of us talk and laugh sometimes about the length of the story because we know it's, it's going to be a while. And sometimes we both get a little tired, (laughs) but but we're going to get it done one way or another. Looking forward to it. Thank you. There's a lot of really great one-liners throughout what's been 24 issues so far. And one of my favorites is monsters are people too. (laughs) And that sort of stuck out in me is um, because the story is about a lot of rough patches for the characters like racism and savagery and addiction, violence, abuses of power, and monsters are people too sort of struck me as this 
blanket approach to forgiveness and optimism. Would you say that that that's kind of what Monstrous is about, is how we respond to abuses? And is do you think Kippa's being naive or wise when she says this? Well, that's a really key and important line in the book. I would say it's contextualized by what Kippa says right before that, um, which is more or less, don't be like the witches. Mm. You know, they call us monsters because it makes it uh. easy for us. And what I was thinking about in that moment wasn't, so much about abuse, but rather the reality so much of us find ourselves in where our differences are often used to make us monstrous to others. Mm. So, you know, we have Trump declaring that all Mexicans are rapists, you know, or every Muslim in TV and film is usually portrayed as a terrorist. Mm-hmm. And when America was at war with Japan, all Japanese were depicted as these, you know, slavering buck monsters, mm-hmm. which, you know, it made it easier to strip the rights of Japanese Americans and throw them into internment camps. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, the monstrous other is this lie that that makes it easier to hurt people, to um, diminish and reduce the humanity of people. And so, you know, you, you think about the fairy tale, you think about Beauty and the Beast, or you think about Frankenstein, you know, this is a common theme for how deeply it affects human interaction and the shallow ways we mark who's human and who isn't, and who's worthy of our compassion and who isn't. And so, you know, I feel like Kippa's wisdom is, she understands the danger of that idea and how wrong it is to use that as an excuse to hurt someone, even someone like Micah who scares her. You, you answered a, another question we were mulling on is how you pronounced the characters <laughs> the main character's name we weren't sure if it was micah or uh Mieka or uh Maika or, or okay so thank you for clarifying that <laughs> <laughs> micah i'm gonna it's i'm gonna remember that in my head now when i'm reading <laughs> i have to go back and read all the issues and, and sort of rearrange it in my head now yeah daniel was t- was schooling us you saying it was Maika yeah, and confidently. <laughs> hey, I said that too. I was like, it's Maika. <laughs> I was like, all right, it's Maika. Never mind. Well, listen, I do the same thing with Terry Goodkin's um, sort of, see, I don't know if it's yeah. sort of Shannara or sort of Shannara. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, I don't know which it is. We, inter- we, we interviewed, uh, we interviewed, we interviewed him. him and we said, yeah, the sort of Shannara. And he said, yeah, the sort of Shannara. And we went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've been calling it that for 35 mm-hmm. years. That's how they say it on the TV show. Yeah. It's Shannara, apparently. A Shannara. It's I like never when J.K. Rowling came out and it's like, you're pronouncing Voldemort wrong. <laughs> the T is silent. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's not Voldemort. <laughs> the T is supposed to be silent. Okay. All my, right. My life is now alive. <laughs> Tell me this about is it. somehow... This is a super depressing moment somehow. We're all like childhood's breaking here. So maybe we should move on. (laughs) All right. Okay, what next? (laughs) (laughs) You've worked on um, uh, X-Men and you've worked on Han Solo, uh, as well as finding success with your own characters. Can you talk about the different creative demands between working with characters that are other people's inventions and have been around for decades and are part of the, the cultural uh, language, as opposed to 
your own stuff? Can you just do whatever you want? Are there corporate restrictions or do you have the time stuff with movies or what are the restrictions versus creative liberties that you have between the two situations? Oh man, boy, were there corporate restrictions with Han Solo? <laughs> yep, yep. I can imagine because that came out just like a month or two before the film, didn't it? Or I, a few months before the film? I, I think it was a few months. I'm actually not sure. But what I okay. do remember is that they gave me a certain amount of freedom when it came to coming up with the idea. So for me, it was Cannonball Run meets Han Solo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and they were like, yay, let's do it. So cool. in that sense, I, yeah. So in that sense, I was able to sort of tell the story I wanted to tell, but it was the little things, you know, for example, like, I feel like there was, there was something I'd written about R2-D2 and R2-D2 couldn't be there with Han Solo. Uh, and you know, whether Han like draws first, Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> let's just say he, let's he's just supposed to draw convers- first. I don't know if you knew that. Well, let's just say there were some conversations around it. <laughs> uh, and we, with Marvel, what's interesting is that pre Disney, I would say most of us at Marvel had uh, a fair amount of creative freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the books that I wrote early on in my career at Marvel, uh, for example, Dark Wolverine, I'm not sure that book could be written now. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had very, very, very little oversight, Daniel Way and I. Okay. That was actually a lot of fun. But more generally speaking, at Marvel, I didn't have to worry about world building. It's our world, more or less. And characters already had long, epic, pre-existing histories and personalities. You know, all I had to do was put my own spin on them. That's actually really difficult because you have to stay true to the characters. You also need to be original and you need to figure out how to satisfy the long-term fan with something new, but also write something where a complete stranger to these characters will still fall in love with them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, That's a weird balance, I bet. It really is. And it's a lot of fun and it's, it's a really fun challenge, but it's a challenge nonetheless. And so I think, you know, I really enjoyed my time there. I really, I really, really enjoyed writing for Marvel. But what I realized once it was time to write Monstrous was that I didn't know shit. (laughs) I really didn't. I didn't know shit. I thought that because I'd written novels and because I knew how to write comics that I'd be able to mash those two things together and not break a sweat. Mm -hmm. And I was so, I was so wrong. (laughs) It was as though I had to teach myself how to write comics all over again, hmm. because writing wow. a novel is very different from writing an original story like Monstrous, which requires intense world building, intense character development from the ground up. And to be honest, at one point, I wasn't certain I was actually a good enough writer to pull it off. And sometimes I'm to be honest, I'm, I'm still not sure. Hmm. Like it's it's very difficult. It's a very difficult project and it's a balancing act. That said, there's way more freedom in writing a book like Monstrous. No one is looking over my shoulder, Asanas. We're basically free agents just telling the story like we want it. And no one, I mean, no one in an image has ever asked us what we're doing hmm. or what's coming next. Nice. Yeah, I know. <laughs> They've never given us suggestions on what to do. They stay completely out of the creative process. I mean, a story I, I, I tell with some frequency is that basically, you know, they green let the book on on the concept of girl has psychic connection with monster and sauna's drawing the book and that was that Uh, yeah yeah and they left us alone Mm. and a year passed and they didn't reach out no one asked how it was going no one asked to see any art they didn't check in on us until it was time to submit the solicits Hmm. Really? Yeah. So you're just working in the background the whole time. And they're like, oh, they're like working on it. I I trust (laughs) them. I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's something's going to happen or it won't, but it'll be on them. Yeah. Right. But, you know, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of personal responsibility when you do a book at Image. You have to be highly organized. You have to um, really be on top of your game, not just creatively, although that's a huge part of it, but also you have to be very organized. You have to be a go-getter because it's not like at Marvel where there are people sort of tapping at your window and asking where something is. That's not how it works. If the book doesn't come together, it's your fault. Mm. But for someone like me, I, I like that. I like being in control. I like... Um, having that freedom, it's it's a small price to pay to be able to tell any kind of story I want. It's you funny. like the pressure? Are you that type of person? I would like to say I'm not, <laughs> but <laughs> the reality is I thrive on pressure. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. I used to not be okay with that. I used to tell lies to myself that, that <laughs> no, I, I don't like pressure. Oh, you know, it's terrible. Oh, I wish my life was quieter. But, you know, that was just bullshit. I'm that person where if I'm not working on one or two things, on two things at once, then I feel like I'm not, you know, my day is not complete. Mm -hmm. So that kind of leads into one of the questions that I had. Uh, The world of monsters definitely has a rich and complex history. What was the process of world building like? And do you have any notable real life inspirations for the world? Well, world building monsters was not easy. Uh, it was an organic process that more or less took place over about a year. I mean, the intense part of it, that is. Mm-hmm. Um, I started out with one idea and then the book became something radically different as I began to write and Sana began sending me her own very inspired images. So, for example, uh, the original concept was still going to be about a girl who had a psychic connection with a monster, but it was going to be a literal Godzilla-type monster. Mm. And, you know, I love Godzilla. Mm. But the problem is it's difficult to tell a, an intimate human story when one of the characters is 300 feet tall. and <laughs> <not in her. laughs> It ain't easy to do. And so I kept wrestling with this. And then Sana sent me her, her vision of these monsters, and they were absolutely glorious they were they were glorious we put them in the we put them in the back of the the latest hardcover edition so people could see them but they were more spirit Mm. rather than than blood and for me that was a huge turning point because suddenly they were ghosts and monstrous became a story about possession Mm. you know among other things but that's how the world building happened you know the inspiration was cobbled together bit by bit for example the same thing is true with kippa kippa was never meant to be um an important character you know, she was going to be a one-off that disappeared probably like after the first issue. And then Sana submitted her design for Kippa and it was just so right and so alive and so inspiring that when I saw Kippa, it was as if, it was as if Kippa was just alive on the page for me. Mm-hmm. And, and she became this, well, I mean, as, as you know, she became this essential part of the mm-hmm. book. And then also, um, you know, growing up, I spent a lot of time with my Chinese grandparents in Vancouver, and they were always talking about World War II. My, um, I've talked to this about this a lot in other interviews, but mm-hmm. my grandfather, he was a pilot in the Chinese Air Force, and you know, my grandmother was a teenager when the war broke out, and she had to leave her home. And so she basically was dealing with disease, uh, starvation. Um, she nearly lost her life multiple times. And yet, when I knew her as a kid and as a teen and as an adult, she could still smile about it all. Mm. You know, she, she could appreciate the fact that she'd been strong enough and lucky enough to survive. And that had a really deep effect on me. And so she's one of the main inspirations of the book. You know, writing Monstrous has been a way for me to get closer to her. Mm. Wow. 
So uh, you mentioned Kippa. I love Kippa. Thank you. <laughs> she is so sweet. She's so bright. You know, she's such a great contrast to some of the other characters who are older than she is and more hardened by the things that have happened. Oftentimes, uh, it seems as though her companions are, you know, looking down on her sort of. They are saying, like, your optimistic viewpoint is not helpful. It's not going to help you survive. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of more ancient creatures seem to favor that as wisdom. Um, can you tell me why you think characters like Kippa are important? You said she was almost written off. So why did she stay and what can we learn from her? The thing is with Kippa, I, I have long thought of Kippa as who Micah once was before mm. the war, before her mother began training her and twisting her. And so it's, it's too late for Micah to ever reclaim that. But I think, I think there's a part of her that recognizes herself in Kippa. And maybe she also recognizes that Kippa is more resilient than her. You know, I think of Micah and Kippa as both having these iron backbones. Mm -hmm. But I would venture to argue that Kippa is stronger. Mm -hmm. You know, her moral compass is stronger than her fear. She's a powerfully moral person. Yes. And even when she's afraid or angry, she always has the courage to do the right thing and to say what's right. You know, even when no one else agrees or when it might cost her. And so maybe no one else shares her moral code, but that's okay. You know, for me, it's enough that she has one and she sticks with it. And I think that's really important to model in a world like Monstrous, where war has ravaged idealism and hope and where priorities have dropped to the level of survival. And I, I believe it's important to model in our world as well, because life never gets easier. Usually it just gets shittier. <laughs> for real. And you can face it any number of ways, but if you... If you hold inside yourself the person you want to be, if you stay true to that, maybe that means there's a part of you that life can't diminish, that life can't fuck with. Yeah. That's beautiful. And, well, thank you. Well, I mean, but that's, that's, kind of, that's sort of how I feel about Kippa. I feel like she is this, she's young, yes, and she's optimistic, yes, but it doesn't come from complete innocence and it doesn't come from, from naivety. Right. It comes from this deep well of wisdom that she has and that these ancients in this world recognize and that those who aren't as ancient, who are more jaded, who are cynical, they can't see it for what it is, you know, or at least they can't admit it, you know, that, that this thing could have some sort of power and that this child could have something to teach them that would be radically important. I, I cannot wait to see. I, for some reason, I thought book four was going to be the end, and I got to the cliffhanger, no. and I was like, Kippa, no! <laughs> no, that would be terrible. Yes. <laughs> but I want to talk about cats. Hey, meow, meow. Yes, yes, the Nicomancers. So you've got cats. They are poets. They are historians. They have knowledge of the dark arts. Uh, they are even set apart, according to Master Tam Tam's very wise lectures, as one of the five great races. Why cats? Um, I, w I wish there was a deep reason, but I'm a cat person. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Straight up, I'm a cat person. And I, I really, I profoundly believe that cats are one of the great mysteries of life. <laughs> I, if you told me that cats were an alien species that domesticated humans, I would totally buy it. Yes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm that person. Uh, you know, I, I recently read an article, um, I think, I don't know if it was the New York Times or where, but I guess they did a study where they, they have definitively proven that cats actually do recognize their names. They just choose not yeah. to oh. answer to them. <laughs> they yeah, just don't care, about right? <laughs> and for me, that just kind of, that, that sums up one of the many things I love about cats, which is that they just don't give a fuck. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
But when they do, they really, really do. Yes. And I, I don't know. I, again, I wish I could give you a deeper answer, but no, that's, but that's my feel. See, as a dog person with a son, my son, my, my son is like, Dad, can we get a cat? And I'm like, we might as well just get a picture of a cat. <laughs> no, they don't no. come when you call them. I was hissing at so you. Does, You're does not a cat. Tam Tam, mm. he, does he turn his head when, when you say Professor Tam Tam? Or is he like, my students don't refer to me and I don't acknowledge them. Single ear twitch. I'm going to ignore you. <laughs> Well, actually, I have a quick question for you. So what gender do you think Professor Tam Tam is? Oh. You know, I was going to say male, but now I'm saying female. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. You know, for some reason, when I was reading that, I, I just felt compelled to read it out loud with like this hoity British accent. So because it was my own voice, <laughs> I just said it was male. <laughs> so that's what I'm going with. Okay. It's not about sexism in academia. <laughs> He's trying to read. That's where I was going. Where I just oh like assumed. Lord. But then you got what was in a purple scarf. Am I remembering that right? And there was a maid just, outfit at one point. Yeah. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Now, which doesn't necessarily mean anything. That doesn't mean anything. The thing about cats, and I'm not, I'm not answering the question, you know. But the thing about cats is, you really actually can't tell their gender. Mm-hmm. And so, so I'm that could be the last issue when you finally reveal Professor Tam Tam's gender. <laughs> like that's going to be the big reveal. I'm not actually sure Professor Tam Tam's gender even matters. No, but I'm always curious to hear what people think about Professor Tam Tam's gender and about Ren's gender and about all these cats and their genders. I had honestly assumed male for Ren, and now yeah, now I'm Ren doubting everything. Male. But for for the professor, I kind of went back and forth, like depending on the the page. If that makes sense, like depending on what he was doing or she, now I'm calling you, now I say he, but yeah, yeah. gender is cat. I guess I didn't think about it. Maybe that's because your male professor is sitting across. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought I would ask. I want to throw that wrench into this conversation because I'm always curious about that. I'm going to go home and examine all my biases now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So switching gears (laughs) a lot. So fear is a driving force in the world of of monstrous and it seems to be one of the only emotions that like each character shares and in volume one micah asked kippa if she's scared of her and kippa answers yes and uh micah says i'm scared of me too which is one of my favorite lines and i think that's the most interesting relationship to me is the relationship between micah and her demon or her fears within herself so how do you approach writing a character who fears themselves and their own power in a world that's driven by fear? That's a really good question. So I think of fear as completely natural. You know, I, I think of fear as universal. Um, it serves a purpose. But the question always is how you manage that fear. Mm. You know, do you let it control your life? Do you let it overwhelm you? Do you move past it? Are you able to remain clear-headed even though you're afraid? Do you panic? Do you let fear tear you to pieces? Fear is really difficult. It forces us to take our measure, you know, as people. And you really have to learn about yourself when you're afraid. And that's almost always deeply, deeply unpleasant. You know, there are two questions that have to be answered in life. Who are we when we're afraid? And who are we when we have power? Because both fear and power can lead people down very dark paths. You know, um, or alternatively, they can encourage people to rise to their better natures. 
And so when I think about Micah, those are the questions that I'm, I'm asking. You know, how much will she allow fear to deform her life? Will it be a little, you know, a lot, not at all? And what will the lesson of her fear be? Because how Micah manages the questions asked by her fear are just as important as those asked of her around power. Mm. Yeah, I guess her fear is very connected to her power, what she could be capable of. Um, well, and I think that's, a. I think, I mean, I think that's not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a lot of us hold within ourselves, whether it's a lack of confidence, whether, um, I mean, I mean, let's just start with a lack of confidence, right? Mm. You know, maybe we're really, maybe we're really good at something like I'm, you know, let's say someone's really good at, at, at drawing, right? In fact, they're amazing at it, but they're afraid, you know, they're afraid they're not good enough. Um, you know, they're afraid of what others will say. They're afraid of, of people judging them, you know, because of whatever reason. Right. Um, and so because of that fear, because of that lack of confidence, they don't do the thing they're amazing at. They bury it, you know, or they diminish it. Um, they set it aside, you know, or they self-sabotage. And so it's, you know, whether we're talking about, a literal demon that lives inside you that you're afraid of, or we're talking about some talent you have that, that you're afraid of sharing with the world. You know, this is, I think something that, that people can identify with. Yeah. Yeah. Just be, just before the interview, Sam and I were talking about the difference between in life, doing what you're supposed to do versus doing what you love to do. And the easier of those two is what you're supposed to do. Of course. Well, it's, it is, it is, it's, it's technically easier. Mm-hmm. It's easier up to a point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then at what point does it become torture? Yeah. Um, because sometimes, you know, if, if you live the straight and narrow path and you do what you're supposed to do, that's all right. But you may reach a certain point in your life where you start reflecting and having second thoughts, you know, um, wishing you could turn back time, mm-hmm. wish you do things differently. And that's difficult as well. You know, that's its own pain. Yeah. So you have a background in writing both novels and graphic novels. And I really enjoy the way that Monstrous owns being a graphic novel. Like it just Mm -hmm. feels like it really takes advantage of the medium just in the way that it's presented and laid out. I always think of the dialogue, how Micah's letters to her friend are in like a different bubble than when people are whispering to each other, when people are thinking, and sometimes when people are dying, their speech looks different, which I think is really interesting. And the art does so much storytelling, of course. But I was wondering, what has drawn you to graphic novels more recently? And in what other ways have you learned how to use this medium to its full potential? Well, first of all, I have to give credit for the beautiful lettering to Russ Wooten. Um, he's our letterer on the book and our graphic designer. And he also does the letters for um, The Walking Dead, um, oh. for all of Rick Ender's books. And he's just, he's a sweetheart and just the best, absolutely the best. So I just want to give a shout out to him. But as far as, as far as the rest of your question, you know, the medium is just a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, so writing comics is, is, this three-dimensional practice. For example, a novel's character, conflict, and world, is, it's built on nothing but words, right? Mm-hmm. There's no visual element except for what your imagination provides. And you also have, a, sort of theoretically, an unlimited amount of space to tell your story. 
That's not the case with a graphic novel, which is visual and textual Mm -hmm. and requires that the story be broken down into these discrete sequential moments. You also have, you know, depending on the book, sort of this relatively limited amount of space in which to tell your story, particularly if you're writing a monthly 20-page comic, Mm -hmm. you know, from DC as opposed to a graphic novel. So when I say that writing comics is a three-dimensional practice, it means that you're not just writing a story. You're deciding how to build character and conflict and world through the visuals and the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And not only that, you have to figure out which scenes will matter most to building your story in what order and what size. You know, you have to decide how many panels you'll need on one, on the page mm-hmm. and in what focus. So there are all these decisions that have to be made for every comic book page you write. And that's only if you're the writer. An artist has to consider all these same questions. And it sounds complicated, and it is, but for me, it's a lot of fun. Like, it's this puzzle that I have to play with when it comes to developing a narrative. And, you know, and, and beyond that, too, there are stories that, you know, for years, I have this, I have this notebook filled with, with ideas, you know, story ideas, novels, things like that, half, half begun, you know, um, bits of prose here and there. And I could never finish them. And I realize now, like in hindsight, that these are stories that wouldn't work as well as a novel. They, they needed to be comics. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely true for Monstrous. Mm. Like, I cannot imagine writing Monstrous as a novel. Um, it's, I'm not saying it couldn't be done. But it, it wouldn't be the same story without Sana's art. It just it just wouldn't. Mm. It wouldn't be monstrous. Right. And I think that some stories are beautifully suited for the medium. Some are beautifully suited for prose. And you just you sorta you sort of feel it out as you begin creating. You talk about working with your artist, uh, Sana. Can you kind of elaborate on the collaboration between the two of you and how do you establish your roles like when creating this story? And also just other artists that you've worked with? Well, I met Sana at Marvel. She and I worked on, on X-23 together. And she started out as a fill-in artist. Hmm. And, right, like it was just, she just did a couple pages. But those pages were so beautiful and so emotional that I knew that I had to work with her again. And when the regular artist on Monster, or, sorry, on X-23 departed, I specifically asked for Sana. Um, and so for a while I was working with Sana, I was working with Phil Noto on X-23 and of course they have radically different styles and they're just both amazing people, you know, (laughs) man, Phil is amazing. But the one thing about Sana was just how she captured Mm -hmm. these silent moments where characters would just be emotionally lost in themselves and it was in their eyes. And I, I just don't even know how to describe it, except that, that very few people can do that. Very few people can, can command silence in a visual. And Sana can do that. And so we parted ways, you know, X-23 was canceled and, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and three years later, you know, I reached out to her and, and I was like, hey, do, you know, do you want to do this book? And she was like, well, OK. I think she she always says now that she thought I was joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, and, and I but I was not <laughs> I was very serious. And and, you know, away we went. But the working relationship between me and Sana has always been um, both straightforward and, and deeply complicated. And by complicated, I, I mean it's complicated only in its richness because sometimes it feels as though we share the same mind. And I've, I've never collaborated before with someone whose work so perfectly embodies the story that's being told. 
And so I, you know, I write my scripts and I don't provide a ton of detail, particularly around character design. I give the emotions of the character. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll describe in depth what a character is feeling more than I will describe um, what the character looks like because, because Sana works on emotion. Right. And yeah, so in some ways the scripts are fairly spare. And then I, I turn them over to Sana and six, seven weeks later, she gives me a, um, a working first draft of, of the issue. And it's always beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always really incredibly beautiful. And if I have any notes, which isn't often, I will give them to her and she'll disappear for another week. And, <laughs> Um, and then come back with the finished product, which is even more beautiful. And so, so like I said, it's, it's, it's straightforward, but also, you know, because this is a very deep and, and, and it's a textual story. There's a lot happening. There's a lot unspoken that passes between us that, that we understand about the characters and the narrative. And so it doesn't have to go on the page. It's just understood because she understands these characters in this world um, and what we're trying to do. And she is living in it deeply when she does her art, just as I'm living in it deeply when I'm writing these characters and, and, and these scripts. And somehow that produces this book. Mm. Um, Sometimes it just feels very, weird and surreal but at the end of the day we have this product that comes out and it's it it's physical it's there in the world <laughs> you know and and that's that but it's it's a you know i've i've been very very lucky to work with remarkable artists over my career like i just just fantastic fantastic people and i've always been so grateful to them and it's always been such a blessing i mean the other wonderful thing about writing comics is that I get to collaborate and writing a novel is, is pretty isolating. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's you and the page right. and you're the one who's responsible for building the world. Um, it's all on you. You, you have to, with your words alone, create a psychic connection with your reader so that when they read your novel, they are pulled in, they are immersed, mm. they are having a, 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 a visceral mental experience. Um, I definitely because, did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, that's, and that's its own thing. And when you're doing a graphic novel, you're also hoping that, that the reader has a visceral experience when they're reading but it's different because there's there's visuals there's there's actual art mm-hmm. and it's really amazing and wonderful working with artists and bringing that kind of story to life and it's also just just for me as a fan of these people beat for me as a fan <laughs> of sauna like i fangirl hard <laughs> you know every time I see these pages and i know that that like the thing with comics is oh, the writer could disappear completely disappear but the comics live and die by their artists Mm -hmm. and and so you know it's just uh, i mean i could go on and on but (laughs) but let me just say again it's just a blessing like it's it's such a gift to be able to work with with sauna who's so talented and to have been able to work with with all these other talented people um throughout my career yeah because you mentioned x23 like when you look at her artwork from that book like it's good like it's great even but when you look at monstrous it's like she just evolved 10 levels 
And it's just a phenomenal uh, difference in, in storytelling between like seeing your collaborations between just those two years. It's, it's like night and day. My dude, I am jumping up and down hearing you say that because <laughs> it is so true. Like people will see Sana's art on X23. And like you said, it's great, but they won't recognize that it's her art. And there are so few artists I can think of who could so radically change their styles and up their mm-hmm. game like that. And like, I mean, she, like you said, it was just in a matter of, of years. Like it was what, three years. It was no time at yeah, all. It was like two or three years. It was like a uh, young Bruce Wayne, like goes to Tibet and converges <laughs> this Kung Fu master. And suddenly he's Batman. It's like this. How did you do that in so short a time? Genius. You, to, so- to go from like, you're very good to you're, you're legit. One of the best in the industry. But, but you know what, that's the thing with Sana is I, 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 I say it and I say it and I say it. She's a genius. Like she just keeps pushing herself and pushing herself and pushing herself. And I know that she is pushing herself on this book to do more and to do better and to grow as an artist. She's a woman who will never stop being hungry for more. She will not stop pushing herself to become better. She will never be satisfied with where she's at. I know that about her as an artist is something I admire about her deeply. Like it inspires me because she, I would say she's at the top of her game, but she doesn't feel like that. Mm. She wants to do more and she wants to do better. And I am here for her and I love her for that, you know, because that's, that's a, it's a really inspiring thing to work with someone who aspires always to be her best, but also knows that she can be better even then her best. And Daniel was able to work in a reference to Batman <laughs> into the podcast <laughs> once again. I try. <laughs> I have to do it every time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Did you see the Joker movie? <laughs> I did. I did. I, I had some feelings about that one. Mm. But the weird thing is I didn't see Taxi Driver till after I saw Joker. Oh, what? So, so it was sort of like, I knew what it was referencing. We're like, wow, I didn't realize how heavy handed this was. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and I haven't seen Kings of Comedy. Apparently that was another big influence. So I did not know that. Yeah. That's why I think they cast De Niro. So they can be like, we're not ripping it off. It's just homage. <laughs> we cast De Niro. He was in both of them. So there we go. Hmm. We know what we're doing. So, so you talk a little bit about characters and character design um and it's so awesome to read a book dominated by women and poc characters so did you experience any pushback or encounter any obstacles when you're getting this series started or setting it in front of readers oh hell no <laughs> great <laughs> but I was earlier in comics they didn't ask me what the book was about <laughs> like I mean, shit, I could have been writing anything. <laughs> you know, I think after it was published, what was, what was really fun was to watch how it, it was fun. It was fun to watch how surprised people were when they'd real, when they would realize that this was a book where almost all the characters were women. Mm-hmm. So like over and over, I've heard readers, male and female say, you know, wow, I didn't even notice until the end that there were all these women, you know, and that to me was really cool. Um, and, you know, I've asked myself why, why that was the case. But I think, 
you know, partially because I think so few books do star all women. Mm-hmm. And when they do, there's usually a world building reason for it that drives the narrative. Like, right. you know, a virus killed all men or women took over, mm. you know, but that's not the case with Monstrous. So, you know, for example, almost all our favorite movies and TV shows are cast with men and only one or two women. You know, even look at the Avengers, you look at Star Wars, mm-hmm. Wars you look at Justice League, um, you know, you just go on like our, our favorite, favorite entertainments, a lot of, you know, even most of the Marvel movies. And so I did the reverse, right? I cast the book with women and all people of color with absolutely no explanation because it should be a given. Mm-hmm. It should just be taken for granted just as much as male dominated books and shows are taken for granted. That's really interesting because I actually noticed it right away (laughs) because I feel like comic books are so male driven and just like the main character. So like every time another woman came into the story, I was like, yes, another woman. (laughs) (laughs) I I think what clicked it for me is when uh, the prison guards were like people carting them away. And I was like, that is I mean, it's one thing when you have like the main characters as women and, and the, the matriarchal society, but it was when it was the guards that were women. I was like, okay, okay, I see what you're doing here. Because <laughs> this would typically be like the big, gruff, like ugly guy that would make a comment about her body or something like that. And then he gets justifiably hammered in the head or something like that. And I was like, oh, all right. So just all the rule, we're just going to do a flip. Okay. I'm done with that. See, I, I didn't notice that. until Kippa. And I was like, oh my gosh, the fox is a girl too? Yes. You know, <laughs> when I, well, you know, when I was growing up, well, it was just one of those, it's just one of those things. Like when I was growing up and my imagination, I was always this kid that was, I was always telling stories to myself. And in these stories, girls and women were always central. You know, it's, there was, I mean, you know, like no, no surprise, but they were always central to the stories I would tell myself. And, you know, when I was growing up and I was reading my fantasy novels and I was watching, you know, my favorite television shows and and movies, that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. It was all, it was usually all, it was all men, usually Mm -hmm. white men. Mm -hmm. Uh, If there were people of color, they were, you know, the side characters that would get killed off or they were just in the background. And, and maybe one woman, but she always had a very particular role, right? Mm-hmm. She was, um, she was the, the strong kick-ass warrior woman, um, who, you know, is just one of the guys, uh, she's a whore with a heart of gold mm-hmm. or she's a evil whore or, you know, like mm-hmm. it's just, you name it. Like, but there were, but there were very particular, um, roles for women and it was just so limiting. Mm-hmm. It, you know, if, if an alien, if an all an alien knew about our society was what it saw on television, it would think that um, there were almost no women in the world mm-hmm. and uh, no people of color. And and that's sad. It's mm-hmm. also sad, too, that that we are so heavily influenced by the things that we love. Right. Yeah. You know, I I love I love my Marvel movies. You know, I love Justice League. I love all of this. But these things that we love aren't, we can love them and also be critical of them at the same time, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And, and, sure. and these things that we love aren't necessarily good for our imagination. Yes. Or how we view the world, you know? And so it was just, it, it was and it is um, important for me to tell stories that would have given little me something to hold on to. Mm-hmm that 
would have fed my imagination in a different way um, than, than, than what I received when I was growing up. Um, and, and I, I keep that in mind, uh, a lot when I, when I work, I think about little me, you know, me as a little kid, what, what I needed and what I, I wasn't getting, what I didn't even know to ask for. Right. I didn't even know, I, I, I didn't even know I should ask for it until much later. Micah finds herself, uh, with one foot in two separate sort of cultures, uh, born of one and looking like a member of another. As the father of a biracial child, I couldn't help but read her struggle as similar to what I might imagine many of the struggles that my son will face. Um, often wanting to be a part of both sides of his heritage, yet never really feeling fitting into either and sometimes being outright rejected by both. Um, I wonder if by chance this was something that you might have been thinking about when writing Monstrous. And can you talk a little bit about the way that your work comments on the complex relationships between the individual and race and culture? Oh, you better believe I was thinking about it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I grew up this mixed race kid in Seattle in the 80s, and I was in this strange liminal zone where white people knew I was, quote, different and were always interrogating me about what I was. Um, and then you'd have people of color who would think of me as white because mm -hmm. I didn't look Asian enough. Mm -hmm. But there I was spending like all this time with my Chinese grandparents and the Chinese side of my family growing up culturally Chinese. But I had another life where all of that was invisible to the rest of the world. And so, wow. yeah, I mean, and, you know, and it meant that I, I inhabited these, these, I guess you call them different realities, right? With, you know, these vastly different perspectives. And when you're mixed race, I, that's just, that's, I think that's just part of the bag. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a bad thing and it can be a lot of fun, but it, and it can also be really difficult, but it demands a certain fluidity in how you navigate the world and how you see yourself. You know, it makes you think a lot about the boundaries of identity. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was important for me to bring that into Monstrous, to speak to the mixed race people who might encounter this book. Um, I wanted them to be able to see themselves. Mm. And so, you know, arcanics are by nature mixed race, part human, part otherworldly creature. Mm -hmm. You know, some of them look more human, some don't. But the thing is, they are all subject to oppressive regimes that either want to commodify their bodies like the humans do, mm -hmm. or like the ancients who don't see them as fully equal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, I kept thinking back to also to, we interviewed Ken Liu, who wrote one of my favorite short stories, The Paper Menagerie. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Um, great story about, uh, you know, Chinese son of a mixed race uh, couple. The father mm -hmm. um, kind of picks his wife out of a catalog almost and, you know, has her come over to the United States. And, and the son sort of rejects the mother because of his peers kind of saying, you know, oh, you, you know, you're playing with these, you're playing with junk. You're playing with playing with these paper origami things when you should be playing with star Wars, right. you know, figures. And one of the things that he said is he was kind of writing the story of that American whose story is just vanished that, that mm -hmm. the person who refuses to kind of assimilate, learn the language, you know, become Americanized, the mother character. It's really mm -hmm. her story in many ways, you know? Well, it's, that's a very familiar story to me as well, because that's, that's how my grandparents were, mm -hmm. you know, Canada, they, you know, they, they, they loved Canada, but assimilation, oh, 
(laughs) They lived in a Chinese community where there was its own Chinese newspaper um, and all their friends were Chinese. They spoke Mandarin all day long. I mean, they knew some English because they they owned and ran a laundry, um, which is about as stereotypical as you can possibly Mm -hmm. get. But, um, but they, but assimilate? Nah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, that wasn't part of their, that wasn't part of their lives. Yeah. Uh, and then one question we always ask at the very end, do you have any advice for aspiring graphic novelists and writers in general? The first key to making it is just to do it right. You have to create, you have to practice, you have to refine your craft. You have to read everything you get your hands on from poetry to newspapers to novels. Um, I mean, novels from the 18th century, uh, modern novels. You just have to fill yourself up. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is that you have to finish what you start. You know, it doesn't <laughs> matter if you're a genius. You have to finish your work. You know, and, and those are the those are the, the, the two pieces of advice I, I give out. And usually my students look at me and they're like, you know, isn't there anything else? And I'm like, eh. <laughs> You know, at the end of the day, I, I wish, but there's, at the end of the day, those are the, those are the two things you really just have to do. Yeah. You have to write, you have to practice, you have to read, and you have to finish. Well, so the people who think that there's some sort of magical incantation <laughs> or you, your uncle needs to know a guy who did 20 years over in here and knows a guy or something, it's like, there's no magic key. There's nothing no. like that. It's I didn't know anyone. I was not connected at all. Mm. I, I wrote a romance novel. I researched um, submission guidelines at publishers and agents, and I sent the book out, and I held my breath. Well, thank you so much for talking no, with thanks us. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. No, I deeply appreciate you taking the time. The pub is produced on that series of tubes we all know as the internet from the studios at Underdark, which doubles as my basement and office you can listen to us on Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, where we post new episodes every Monday. You can also find us at straylightmag.com, where we publish new stories, poetry, art, and of course, podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at the Pub Podcast on Twitter. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things narrative, story, and publishing. <laughs>